Welcome to Petrifaction. We're all about horror stories. If you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you are in the right place. prepared to be petrified. In another sighting of something weird flying around the skies of Mississippi, according to cryptozoologist and researcher Linda Godfrey, this happened in the mid-1990s. There were two separate sightings of a flying humanoid of some sort in the vicinity of La Crosse, Wisconsin, and the town of Medford. In these cases, the entity was described as having wings and very reptilian-looking features. Godfrey covered the case in her book, Hunting the American Werewolf, and she writes of this encounter. A man and his son had a sighting by the riverbank in La Crosse while hunting for a lost dog. They saw what they described as a lizard man, covered in brownish scales and very reptilian-looking. It did not have its mouth open or arms extended. Around the same time, a state DNR warden and separately a group of highway workers saw what they described as a reptilian man on Highway 13 near Medford. It also possessed wings and was able to fly out of their view. Rather bizarrely, Godfrey has managed to dig up yet another report of a strange flying humanoid from the same area of La Crosse, and which is also much more recent. The alleged encounter occurred in, at about 9.30 p.m. on September 26, 2006, along a dark, densely wooded rural road called Briggs Road, which is located just north of La Crosse and right up against the Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife and Fish Refuge. On this evening, the main witness, known only by the Cherokee name of Wahali, was driving along the gloomy road with his 25-year-old son when they were startled by the sight of a creature out of their nightmares, looming out of the darkness, past the flickering trees into the illumination of their headlights. It was described as a bat-like, man-like creature, 7 feet tall, with a 12-foot wingspan and possessing a muzzled face full of visible sharp teeth that was remembered as looking very angry. The strange abomination reportedly flew right at their windshield on a seemingly collision course, apparently snarled at them, and then flew up into the blackness above with a shriek before impact. As soon as it did so, the two witnesses report that they had been overwhelmed with a sudden sense of nausea, which made them incredibly ill and forced them to veer to the side of the road and vomit profusely into the mud. This inexplicable Sickness apparently lasted for a week after the encounter, after which it just sort of faded away. What Holly would say of the beast they'd seen. It had distended ribs, 
long sort of human legs with claws, huge bat-like wings with arms sort of attached. I remember the teeth and the scream we heard was terrifying. I've been living in this valley all my life and have seen some strange things. After all, the Mississippi Upper Wildlife Refuge is the largest in the country and right by my back door. It hides lots of strange creatures, but I've never seen anything like this. Rent the movie Bram Stoker Dracula. The Dracula creature looks like it, or better yet, like the one in Van Helsing. It's hard to ascertain why these two witnesses felt so sick or what that had to do with the thing they supposedly saw. But it is, it is definitely an odd detail. Godfrey actually followed up on this report by visiting the scene of the encounter and speaking with Wahali. And while she was visiting the area with the witness and a hunter friend of his, they made a rather macabre discovery that may or may not be tied to it all. There, sprawled out in the brush just off the road, was a deer carcass, which was in quite strange state. It was a deer carcass that was in quite a strange state. Godfrey has said of the finding. There were no visible drag marks and a complete absence of blood on the ground. The deer carcass lay on its right side, with its back facing the road. And the white area we saw was its exposed layer of winter fat the skin having been peeled back from the midsection toward the forelimbs, which remain intact along with the head. No bullet wounds or bite marks were visible. There was no odor, probably because the temperatures had ranged near freezing at night and were only in the 50s during the daytime. The hunter with us estimated the carcass to be no older than three days, and its weight at about 60 pounds. The low weight estimate was due to the fact that the entire haunch section, which is the lower abdomen and rear limbs, were gone. The spine still protruded from the midsection, which by the way still retained the prized ribs and tenderloin that a hunter would certainly have taken, but the haunches appeared to have been ripped off. The remains did not appear to have been cut with a knife. And the fact that the carcass was nearly bloodless and there was no blood at all on the road or in the vicinity would indicate that the haunches were ripped off in another place where the carcass immediately bled out. And then it was carried to this spot and deposited. There were no apparently visible tooth or bite marks that would have been left by something carrying it in its mouth. We were not in a position to conduct a complete forensic exam of the animal Oddly, an unused, unopened, dark garbage bag lay adjacent to the carcass toward the road. The odd carcass was apparently still there the next day in the same condition, which seems odd in that it should have at least been descended upon by scavengers, but it was oddly devoid of any signs of this kind of activity. At this time, Wahali and friend would then claim that they could see something black at the top of the nearby hill that looked like an inky ribbon unfurling. And this, plus the gruesome sight that the weird deer carcass played out nearby, were unsettling enough that they felt it was time to vacate that area. It's hard to say what was going on here or just what connection or significance that unusual deer carcass had with the man-bat, but it's all very odd at the very least. There are precious few other pieces of the puzzle to go on here, and we are left with this handful of weird sightings along the Mississippi. 
whatever it is, one wonders just what kind of winged weirdness are prowling the skies of the Mississippi River, whether or not they'll be back or not. On May 11th of 1894, the city of Vicksburg was hit with a hailstorm. While nothing about the storm itself was out of the ordinary, what fell from the sky was a different story. During the storm, a gopher turtle and a block of alabaster, both encased in ice, plummeted to the earth and landed in Vicksburg. If these floodgates were to fail, it would shift the river course 85 miles west and make America's largest port effectively useless overnight. Some famous Mississippians include James Earl Jones, Walter Payton, Brett Favre, and Eric Roberts. And one last thing about Mississippi. If you wear false teeth, you want to make sure you keep them in your mouth when you dine out because the law in Mississippi is a strange one. The law forbids anyone in Mississippi throwing dentures at others in a restaurant. The Mojave Desert lies in South Central California. It's barren with some hills and miles upon miles of desolate sand and cactus. There have been reports of Bigfoot activity in the area. Why would a Sasquatch live in a barren, open desert? Food would be a problem for one, let alone water. And the scorching summer heat, after all, these things reportedly have thick fur coats. But then most experts contend these creatures are nocturnal. And the desert gets very cold to cold at night. The creature could rest all day under a huge cactus and hunt at night. But there's one key reason why these creatures may live in the area. There are virtually no people. The desert has vast swaths of uninhabited territory where the beast can do his thing and not have to worry about ducking away from humans. In the Mojave Desert of San Bernardino County, near 29 Palms Marine Corps Base and Joshua Tree National Park, it's said the creature known as the Yucca Man lurks. The Yucca Man is described as a large and hairy desert beast. There's been a history of sightings. On a cold February night in 1971, a lone guard manned a post outside an armory on the outskirts of the marine base near 29 Palms. Without warning, the otherwise unearthly quiet was suddenly shattered when a large mass appeared out of the dark desert landscape. The guard raised his rifle and commanded the being to halt. Much to the young man's surprise, the large figure did not stop, but instead charged right at him at an inhuman rate of speed. As the figure grew closer, the Marine realized what was approaching rapidly was not a man at all but a large, upright, running, hairy man. Paralyzed by shock, the young guard stood his ground, too frightened to move. The mysterious creature threw the young man to the ground, rendering him unconscious. When the guard's relief arrived several hours later, they found him almost incoherent with his rifle almost bent in two.
After the incident, both the CIA and FBI were called in to conduct an investigation. Much to their surprise, the locals were more than eager to tell their own stories about giant man-beasts in the area. As a matter of fact, on the very same night as the attack on the guard, two of the creatures were seen roaming through a neighborhood relatively close to the base. When a local couple took a look outside of their front window to see what was upsetting their dog, they saw two yucca men crossing the front lawn. Then sometime later, the same creatures were seen near a horse corral some distance away by others in the same neighborhood. The investigation also revealed that several employees of the Joshua Tree National Monument had seen Bigfoot-like creatures on numerous occasions. Eight years later, in May of 1979, a young couple were leaving their condominium complex in Desert Hot Springs, north of Palm Springs, when a large, hairy creature emerged from behind a yucca in front of their car. According to the driver, the animal had a chest the size of a refrigerator and arms that hung down below its knees. It was so large that he could only see it from the midsection down. The beast, that reportedly was covered in long tan colored hair, disappeared quickly back into the night and leaving no footprint evidence. Also in 1979, a 12-foot tall Bigfoot made a visit to Hernet, California, some distance to the south of Palm Springs, twice in a period of a week. This time, however, the creature left a grand total of 17 tracks in the mud along a rural road during its initial visit. These tracks measured 18 inches in length and were spaced some six feet apart. Noted Bigfoot researchers Douglas Trapp and Danny Perez both conducted an investigation of this sighting, even going as far as to perform a stakeout of the location where the tracks were found. But alas, the monster did not return. In 1988, a couple of servicemen from 29 Palms were returning home from a day of fun in the sun at Big Bear Lake at about 9 p.m., when they encountered a creature that the locals called the Cement Monster due to the fact that it's said to live near an old cement factory in Luzerne County. As the two men approached the old factory, a large, upright, running creature moved across the road in front of their car. As was the case nine years earlier in Desert Hot Springs, the animal in question was so large that the men could only see its lower half. In disbelief, the two men just looked at each other for a moment before one of them exclaimed, What the hell was that? The other replied, That was the cement monster. The driver hit the brakes while the other reached for a gun that was in the glove box. The two adrenaline-filled men searched up and down the road and, and around the cement factory, but never found any sign of the creature. The pair came to the conclusion that they had seen some form of prehistoric man, and they returned to their journey home.
Petrifaction is sponsored by LegacyBrewing.shop. At LegacyBrewing.shop, it's all about the coffee. In addition to wonderful tasting gourmet coffee, you can also get all your accessories at LegacyBrewing.shop. They have the most adorable animal coffee mugs. And if you have great coffee, you have to have a great mug. Check them out today at LegacyBrewing.shop. This cryptid tale comes from Lon Strickler of Phantoms and Monsters. An experienced hiker while trekking along the Osable River in Michigan encounters the scariest creature he's ever seen. This is his tale. I was hiking along the Osable River in Michigan during the summer of 1999. This is in the counties of Oscada, Alcona, and Losco. I remember one of my most scariest encounters with the wilderness. While walking east down along the river around one hour prior to dusk, I heard what to my ears to be a wolf howl. Now I've seen wolf prints and seen wolves at my home in Long Lake, Michigan, but never have I ever heard a howl so deep and almost human-like in my life. I got spooked and set up camp and made a fire, a larger than most due to my fear. At dusk, I heard the howling was getting closer, directly across the river. I had heard stories of the wolfman from native powwows and in my family folklore covering the whole USA, but never have I personally seen what I saw that night. That night, after eating beef barley stew from my canned collection, I lay down by the fire with my huge folding knife closely gripped by my chest. I was watching and listening to the surrounding wood line for about a half an hour when the average night noises just stopped. To me, this meant two things. Either something had spooked the local animals and that it made me very uneasy. I looked out away from the fire and shot the fire away from my eyes by using my unarmed hand. I looked across the river, which was only about a hundred meters across from my fire, and that's when I saw the most unnerving sight ever. On the sand was a creature, standing maybe larger than the average black bear, with black fur, large long skull, and yellow reflecting eyes like a wolf. I closed my eyes and hoped I was imagining things, and then it gave out that howl again. I opened my eyes and it ran up the bank and disappeared into the night. As it ran, it didn't run on all fours like a bear or a wolf. Unlike the local Bigfoot, it wasn't upright either like a human or a primate. I was so scared that I spent the rest of the night in a damn tree 20 feet off the ground. It took me three hours of praying to ease my fear enough to fall asleep. On November 30th, 1989, a large unidentified object was seen by multiple witnesses around 3 o'clock in the morning in Manhattan in New York City. A beam of light coming from the UFO streamed onto a 12-story apartment building where Linda Napolitano lived. Linda awoke in her apartment and saw a shadowy figure at the foot of her bed. It was watching her. 
She then claimed to have been floated out of her bedroom window by a large beam of light right through the closed window. Once Linda was abducted by this UFO, witnesses claim it flew to the East River and plunged into it, disappearing. After being abducted, Linda found herself on an exam table, surrounded by gray creatures. She lay on a table, but then suddenly was back in her room where her husband was sound asleep. After some hypnotic sessions, she began to remember more about the abduction, recalling how she was taken by the light through the ceiling of her apartment and that it felt as if she was standing, but there was nothing to stand on. Linda also remembered details of the inside of the ship, like sliding doors, benches, lights, and buttons. She described being led down a hall and placed on a table where the aliens would perform a procedure on her. Later in time, a doctor had indicated that Linda must have had nasal surgery, but she has no history of any type of surgery. After the abduction, well-respected UFO researcher Bud Hopkins began investigating the case. During his investigation, he began to receive communications from two men named Richard and Dan. The two men claimed to be witnesses to the abduction of Linda and claimed that they were New York police officers working in the area at the time of the abduction. Though as time went on, Richard and Dan explained that they weren't actually New York City policemen, but were working in the capacity as bodyguards for Javier Perez de Seller, the UN Security General. The two claimed to have CIA connections, but exhibited some odd behavior in the months after the abduction occurred. The two men claimed that they were driving the Security General when the vehicle stalled on the underpass of the FDR Drive. Linda's apartment building was across from their vehicle, allowing them to witness the abduction of Linda, as well as the UFO plunging into the East River. Many others witnessed this as well, and it was reported that the power went out and vehicles were affected. Many on the bridge witnessed this and screamed in panic. By April of 1991, these two men kidnapped Linda. She was forced into a car when walking down the street. They interrogated her for hours, but she finally was released without being harmed. Many months later, Dan came back and kidnapped Linda on his own. He believed she had something to do with the alien abduction and posed a threat. Linda was able to escape from Dan, but was recaptured by him shortly after when she was on the beach. Linda was positive Dan would drown her in the ocean, but Richard arrived and stopped Dan from harming her. Linda claims Richard sedated Dan and they all went back to Manhattan. Luckily, she did not see Dan again, but Richard contacted her to tell her that Dan was extremely ill. He was extremely obsessed with her and with the alien abduction and ended up he had to be hospitalized in a mental facility. The two men never came around or contacted her again. Bud Hopkins then focused on the UN Security General. He wanted the Security General to go public with what he saw to help prove that it was real, but he refused. As I mentioned earlier, there were several other witnesses. 
Some of them contacted Bud Hopkins, including a woman named Janet Kimball. Janet's story was extremely similar to Dan Richards. Her car had stalled on the bridge and she witnessed the UFO abduct Linda and then plunge into the river. Though at the time, Janet thought that she was witnessing a movie being filmed with special effects. A well-known New York journalist witnessed the event as well. This journalist reported that he was leaving a local bar that night when the event took place. He claimed to be unable to drive due to his drinking and asked the company driver to drive him home. But they were unable to drive anywhere as there were limos blocking the route. It's believed that these limos were the cars carrying Dan, Richard, and Javier Perez de Cellier. Another witness wrote an article about the event. Yancey Spence was in the New York Post building with a few others, and they witnessed the entire event. Later, he wrote the article, The Day Manhattan Stood Still. This is the article, The Day Manhattan Stood Still, written by witness of the Brooklyn Bridge abductions. The author of this is Yancey Spence. When I heard UFO magazine publisher William J. Brines speak at the recent MUFON conference, later when I ran into Dr. Brines at the Hyatt Hotel, I told him my story had everything to do with such evidence. I'm a witness to a remarkable event, the Brooklyn Bridge abductions which has been called by ufologists the case of the century. Being an eyewitness, I can easily say it's the case of the millenniums, the proverbial landing on the White House lawn. They just chose the harbor of Lower Manhattan instead. If you follow the evidence, you get to the truth of what actually happened on the morning of November 30th, 1989. The facts of what I personally saw have yet to be made public. Most of my recollections of that morning came back to me as instant total recall. I eventually put things together with what went on at the Manhattan offices of the New York Post right after the event, or abduction if you like, occurred. This took a lot of legwork, plus the help of some trustworthy gentlemen that I've had the pleasure to work with and become close friends with over the 28 years I've worked at the Post in the delivery department. About a dozen people remember the procession of stretch limos that was parked on the South Street, where the New York Post is located. These obviously belong to some very important people. I myself remember the ugly colored Rolls Royce. I myself remember the ugly colored Rolls Royce parked at the end of the little pedestrian island that faces the loading bays for the delivery trucks. The Rolls was parked the wrong way on South Street, and the chauffeur was standing just outside the driver's side door. He had his driving hat off and placed on the Rolls' long hood. His arms were crossed like Superman, daring some crazy New York cabbies to run him down. The Rolls had been linked to the then Secretary General of the UN. The four men I tracked down all remembered the roles in line of more than a dozen dark limos. One of these men was Steve Dunleavy, investigative reporter who remembers the limos but not the roles. 
That morning at 2.30, I was upstairs in the South Street Diner, which is on the corner of South Street and Catherine Slip. I was told to report in early for my route, which didn't go out until 4. One of my bosses asked me to give his cousin a ride to Shore Parkway. To get back to the plan, I took the Manhattan Bridge. At that time, both lanes under the pedestrian's walkway were carrying Manhattan-bound traffic. At exactly 3.15 a.m., I was a third of the way over the crest, with no traffic ahead of me, when my truck lights and engine just shut down, and the truck coasted to a stop. I tried the emergency lights, but they didn't work either. I looked into my side-view mirror to see who was going to pile into me, and then saw all of the headlights of the vehicles behind me go out, and they also slowed, coasting to a stop. It felt like everything was going into a slow motion. The bridge lights went out, and everything went dark. In retrospect, I believe that a power grid in lower Manhattan shut down. It was an eerie sight, to say the least. Outside my window, I caught the sight of a beam. It focused in on one of the top floors of a nearby building. At first, I couldn't make out what building it was. But as if to answer my thoughts, the beam of light shot down to street level and ran the length of the block exposing the two sets of very distinctive 15-foot-high inverted metal fishhook gates. These were riot gates used to protect the only two entranceways into the courtyards of the Knickerbocker apartment complex on Cherry Street. I've seen that building thousands of times. How could I not know it was the Knickerbocker? The light beam then shot back up to the top floor of the center building, the one with the exposed water tank, and focused on the bottom half of a double-pane window. There was a window to the right of that that was half the size, probably a bathroom window. This greenish-white beam started to grow brighter and more intense. Then, for some reason, I looked at my side-view mirror, and at that instant, the sky lit up. I saw maybe two dozen people who were now outside of their stalled vehicles. The flash illuminated them through the bridge superstructure. Some of them were screaming and looked like crazed birds locked in a cage, as others pointed back toward the Knickerbocker. It was surreal, and it scared the hell out of me. When I looked back toward the Knickerbocker, there was a totally different light. It was bluish-white with a cloudy mist and shaped like a stage light coming down from above. Within this light appeared what looked like four balls ascending in an arrowhead formation. They were tumbling as they got closer to the source of the light and the balls opened up like blooming flowers. I could see that there were three gray aliens in dark jumpsuits in a triangular formation surrounding an angelic looking dark haired woman in a white gown. The long hair flowed out in all directions as if on a pool of water. They all looked like they were being pulled up by their midsections. I thought at the time that each body was being lifted on cables and that they were making a movie. That's all I remembered of the experience at first. Over the course of the next four weeks, however, more details resurfaced. And that's when I remembered the spacecraft. It was saucer-shaped and the bottom half was outer space black with angled sections that looked like a stealth fighter. 
The saucer's top half was mushroom-shaped, like very organic and smooth and gray, metallic in color. The construction looked as if it was laminated. At the crown was an open, donut-shaped hole, and inside was what looked like molten metal or some kind of fluid. Whatever that substance was, it was percolating like a volcanic mud bed. The rim was a bright red, and the center was an even brighter yellow. In a fraction of a second, that molten mass dissipated to the inside of the dome, turning to liquid fire and spinning around counterclockwise like a giant cotton candy machine. The outside of the dome turned a bright red, and then the saucer and its occupants just disappeared. And finally, to the former Secretary General of the UN, it's been reported in the media that through a spokesperson, you claim that you were home sleeping. Well, maybe you were. But the chauffeur and Rolls were on South Street with the limos of the Security Council, who were home sleeping too, I suppose. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at Petey at Petrifaction at ProtonMail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified.